I'm Robert Gowan. You're listening to Mentors for Military. Appreciate you guys uh, tuning in. We're here at 15 Perry Street, and this week my sidekick is going to be Jason Belford. Hey. So uh, we've got a guest. Actually, Tom, was it June last year or somewhere around there, right? Uh, it wasn't our November yeah. show, so yeah. it was like June-July time frame. Yeah. Tom came in, and this is the beauty of uh, taping podcasts and everything. You never know if everything is going to go right. So Tom's here. We taped this wonderful podcast, and um, at the conclusion of it, while everybody is off on the side and I'm over here doing my audio stuff and trying to make sure the show came out okay, we realized Tom's show didn't tape. And uh, it, it actually showed like it was taping the entire time, and yet um, there was no recovery. It was a flat line. I don't know. I, I mean, I had a couple of people look at it. There was nobody that could figure out how to, um, you know, get it back in there. So at any rate, welcome back. I, well, thanks for having me. My chair keeps falling down. <laughs> it does. <laughs> like every second, you keep dropping. Keep dropping. Every time you like laugh, an eighth of an inch. I'm, like, I'm not sure. Okay. <laughs> I, I hate to do this because we're on, but yeah. I, I'm going to switch back to the original chair. Yeah, go for it. I'll go just for be it. careful. Yeah. Um, no worries. So I'll go ahead and keep filling the audience in. So anyway, we invited Tom back uh, through scheduling and everything else. We had a couple other uh, tapings, and this was the best opportunity that worked out with your schedule, which yeah. is what's most important. So we're just glad that you're back, and we're able to do this once again and tell the whole story because uh, we had a really good time. Oh, man, it was fun. Yeah. I really enjoyed it. I, I walked out of here last time going, wow, that was just awesome. And then when you when you told me that, you know, because I know how, how that breaks your heart, you know, I know. I was like, man, I don't know that I can do that again. I don't know I don't know that we could, that we could recreate that situation. Oh, we but, can't. But, yeah. uh, but it was... Uh, and and I and Robert, I was not going to mention it. Yeah. I mean, the fact that you put it you put it on the, on the air that you know, kudos to you, brother. But I, you know, I well, was. I'm excited like, to be a part of the news story. Yeah. That's the one that's going to work. Yeah, that's right. Well, you'll be here for history, won't you? You'll that's right. be part of the legacy. That's right. Um, but. No, man, it was it, it's it was cool, and I really appreciate you having me back. Yeah, man, I'm just glad that you were able to you know coordinate this whole thing and come back in, especially coming from Texas. And last night, um, so we had like a little bit of a snow flurry. And for anybody that doesn't uh, isn't familiar with Atlanta uh, and our snowmageddon that we had many years ago, that seemed to stop our state, uh, specifically around Atlanta, for a number of days. We had a little powdering last night, and I had no idea that we were even going to get that, but. Um, Tom, you know, foresaw, uh, was it foresaw, foreshadowed um, that ahead of time. And, Forecasted. And actually, what was it? Forecasted. Forecast, yeah, that's a better. <laughs> and um, had sent me a text and said something like, ah, you know, a little snow flurries or something like that isn't going to hold us back. And I was like, ah, no, you know, I had no idea. But, you know, the, the, the thing that's ironic about it was last February we were supposed to do this. And if you remember... We, I had no power, and we were going to do a Zoom, oh, that's a right. Zoom interview, and I had no power. We were frozen in in Texas. We had the big freeze yes. in Texas during that time. You know, I was running my house. I was, I was running twenty four hour ops in the fireplace, <laughs> trying to keep it above thirty five. You know, you put the and, wife on fire guard. And, oh no, 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 I, no <laughs> that I, I got the fire watch. Yeah, <laughs> all the fire watch. But anyway, it was. Uh, 
so that so I I was thinking it's it's going to snow. We we we've been through this drill. We don't we don't need to do I this. I forgot again. all about that. Yeah. So yeah. actually, we've had um, a couple of reschedules, yeah. and then an actual taping that flopped. Yeah. You know, must have been an omen for this to happen because you're now here. Third time's a charm. Yeah, that's yeah, what it, we That's what it's all about. <laughs> we um, so we want to get into your story because it actually starts, at least my relationship or how I got connected with you was through your daughter who went to the Naval Academy and her and her friend, um, while they were going through the Naval Academy, I guess it's now been, has it been six or eight years, somewhere around there? She graduated in 2016, so six years. Six years. I knew it was somewhere close around that. Um, she was the one that said, Hey, you need to have my father on. And, um, they followed us, I think from the time that they were, you know, in their freshman year or something. And at the very beginning of our podcast, so they're kind of the, the OG, um, if you will, when it comes to our followers and we certainly have appreciated that. And we're going to get into why she wanted you to come on here. But, um, first off you now live in Texas, but where is home? Where is home? Yeah, where was home like in the beginning before you came in the service? In the beginning, in the, yeah. you know, I was, well, I was born in San Diego. Yeah. My, my dad retired from the Navy um, when I was a kid in San Diego, so we were in San Diego, but my brothers and sisters, they had, they had moved around. Mm-hmm. Um, we only made one move when I was a kid. We moved to Virginia and then moved back, and that's a story in itself. But um, So I grew up in San Diego. And uh, when I was 17, I went off to the Naval Academy, and then home was wherever, wherever the, the Marine Corps sent me. And your father was what rank? My father was a Master Chief in the Navy. We called him Master Chief of the World. Yeah. You know, before they had a Master <laughs> Chief in the Navy, yeah, he was a Master Chief of the World. Yeah, they didn't have a Master Chief in the Navy. Uh, that was instituted uh, as, my, as my dad was retiring. Okay. And uh, he, was, uh, he was actually... So he really was the what would now be considered... Master Chief of the Navy. No, 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 no. Oh, okay. No, no, no. No, no, no. Just they, in your household. Uh, well, his, his, <laughs> he got that title from people that worked for him. Oh. They called him the Master Chief of the World. Yeah. And uh, he was actually uh, uh, nominated, and, but because he was retiring, he said, ah, okay. I, I, I have to retire. He was retiring because my mom was very ill. Mm. And uh, yeah, my dad would have stayed in the Navy. In fact, I think to the day he died... He, uh, he was probably more up-to-date on events in the Naval Service uh, than I was. And, uh, you know, he was always reading about it. He was a professional through and through to the end. And, uh, of course, my mom was in the Navy, too. My, mo- my mom spent uh, four years in the Coast Guard and then four years in the Navy. And the only reason she got out was because in those days you had to get out when you get pregnant. Yeah. And uh, so when she, when she was pregnant with my uh, oldest brother, she, she got out of the Navy, but... She supported everything my dad did. She was a true patriot. She was involved in schools and essay contests. And, you know, we learned, well, I learned pass down because my mom died when I was 12. But, um, but she, she was the one that talked about politics. She was the one that talked about the Constitution. She was the one that was the patriot. My dad was a stalwart professional through and through, leader like nobody else. And very patriotic, and and uh, gave a lot a lot of his free time to you know coaching coaching kids in sports and scout troops and and all those kind of things. We need more uh, of that. Yeah, we're getting. I think we're starting to get back more to that a little bit more in some cases. But yeah, you're right. We do need a little bit more of that. There was a lot of foundational things as a youth. Oh man. Know, that yeah, that you could oh, you get from that. You know. Well, you know, 
Lord Baden-Powell, when he created the Boy Scouts uh, in England, uh, was a veteran of the Boer Wars, uh, Brigadier General uh, during the Boer Wars, and he was uh, he was thoroughly um, what do you want to say it displeased, aghast. I can't find the right word. I'm a guy with words. I can't find the right <laughs> word. Um, but he uh, but he wanted he saw the youth of England coming into the military. Yeah. had no sense of uh, discipline or things that were required for survival, etc. And uh, you ever heard all that stuff no. before, like with every generation, right? So he went back to England and started the Boy Scouts. And when he came to the uh, William Boyce, started the Boy Scouts in America. My dad was an Eagle Scout. And uh, in those days, being an Eagle Scout it was huge. It was huge. Yeah. And, and, it re and you really learned a lot of things. And so uh, as we were kids growing up, my dad used Boy Scouts. We were all Boy Scouts. Um, none of us were Eagle Scouts. We had got niece, I've got a whole bunch of nephews that are, uh, that are Eagle Scouts. God bless them. Well done. Um, I got that close. But anyway, that's another, you know, that's a different piece. But uh, you want to talk about learning things, you know. Um, everything was about being prepared, you know, and, and patriotism and, and knowing uh, what you needed to do in, 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 in any kind of situation. And uh, we did a lot of camping, a lot of hiking, but there was a lot of other things that, that supported those, those issues. I mean, my dad, it was, you know, Boy Scout oath and law. You know, I can still recite those things, and some people would say, you're still a Boy Scout. I am. Um, but uh, but the, uh, the fundamental uh, under, underpinning was all those values that yeah. go in there. And the hardest thing that I ever had to take from my dad was he told me, you know, if he told me I wasn't living up to, you know, to my, to my oath. Wow. That's good stuff. You know? Like we talked about, like, the values, feelings and values, things, like starting that base young, like your dad did oh, for yeah. you, is like set the foundation for your life, right? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mom was all on board, man. She was full-on supporter, you know. When we were Cub Scouts, she was den mother and, and all those kind of things. And uh, she, she kept you know, kept doing it every day, um, you know, until she died. And uh, so. Well, at 17, what made you go into the Naval Academy? <laughs> well, um, some people would say that it was, a f it's a family tradition. I, I, I tell my kids it's the family business and, and it is. And, you know, and we go back and forth. Why is that? You know, go back to Connolly's in 1776, you know, old Tom Connolly actually fought in the, in the uh, um, French, French and Indian War, oh, French and Indian War, yeah. yeah, and then and then he was a recruiting officer during the during the uh, Revolution, and there have been Connollys who have fought in every conflict since then. Um, my grandfather fought at Bellow Wood as an Army soldier, wow. um, with the uh, with the uh, alongside the Marines, and uh, my dad, my dad was uh, came in the Navy, he wanted to be a, a, a signalman in the Navy and go to sea, and uh, they took his whole signal school class and marched him over to the hospital corps school and made them all hospital corpsmen because they had just, the Guadalcanal had just wrapped up and they had lost so many corpsmen that they needed corpsmen 
And uh, so my dad became a hospital corpsman. He said after about six years, he quit trying to change his rate um, and uh, accepted that he was going to be a hospital corpsman. And uh, he became a master chief. He was a seagoing son of a gun. He did 17 years unaccompanied at sea wow. without a medical officer. Um, and uh, That's a true, yeah. true meaning to the word, you know, sergeant, servant, you know, like. That's awesome. He, he loved it, and, and, uh, and he was good at it, and he was a great leader, um, and he passed all those things on. So my two oldest brothers, uh, my oldest brother went uh, to the University of New Mexico as an NROTC scholarship, became a Marine officer. My second oldest brother went to the Naval Academy um, and uh, graduated, became a Marine officer. My third oldest brother went to the Naval Academy and became a Naval officer, a Navy officer, and... Uh, so they, they were, by the time I was in the seventh grade, I knew that, well, when I was seven years old, my dad asked, you know, he said, you know, we were watching President Nixon on TV, and he said, you, you can be the president if you want to be. And I said, not the president, maybe the commandant. Um, and uh, so I knew when I was young that yeah. I wanted to be a Marine. We had a retired sergeant major who lived next door to us who would tell us uh, war stories about uh, his time uh, in the Marine Corps, and he he was a storied veteran, and uh, but your dad wasn't worried about you joining the Marines because he my I can, I'm a Navy brat, and that was the one branch my dad said don't join. My dad had served, you know, alongside Marines in, on Peleliu. That was his first his first tour uh, as a as a corpsman was on Peleliu, uh, the Battle of Peleliu, bloodiest the bloodiest battle of the South Pacific, mm. and uh, he. Uh, he had great respect for Marines, and uh, and of course, you know, and, and you never, you never understand it as a kid. You're walking through the PX or someplace, and uh, and some some guy stops, and he and you know, he says, "Hey, Doc, how's it going?" You know, and you're having this, they're having this conversation, and Dad, who's that? He says, it's a fellow I served with, you know, somewhere, whatever it was, but. Um, you know, Marines have a very special place uh, for corpsmen, and corpsmen have a very special place with Marines, um, for their Marines. Um, you know, so, so that's, uh, he, he loved the idea of his sons being naval officers. He never told us that that's what we should do. What he told us, and I told my children this, I said, I would hope that you would find some time in your lives to serve your country. Now, uh, we all did that, mm. and uh, and my sister married my classmate, who is a you know career mar who you know who did who's uh, a retired marine, lieutenant colonel, and and uh, there uh, and I have nine. There's thirteen of us, so I nine nieces and nephews that are oh my god that are marines. Wow. Um, and, uh, and a couple that are in the Navy. That's incredible. You know, normally I hear people like, yeah, you know, I got a cousin or an uncle or something like that. But no, I'm not the only person. I mean, we're talking an entire family. Yeah. Up and down that. Yeah. Are you well, saying there was 13, like, brothers and sisters? No. Oh, okay. No. So, so there's, there's I, I me and, and, and my two older brothers. And then my one brother has three children that are Marines. My other brother, my oldest brother has a... A son that's a Marine, and uh, my brother was a Marine. Yeah, retired master gunner yeah. sergeant. And my sister's uh, uh, my sister's daughter uh, is a Naval Academy graduate, naval officer, and uh, so 
I want to say there's nine, nine of us that are Marines and 13, if you include my mom and dad, something like that. The numbers work out, something like that. Mm. But, uh, so, it, you know, the, our house did everything but pitch and roll when I was a kid. You <laughs> yeah. know, I mean, we had a flagpole. I got one out front now with a, with a yard arm on it. And my dad, my dad crafted that thing. And I, and I was doing, you know, doing colors every morning from the age of seven, you know, and, uh, until I left home. And, uh, you know, he had, you know, he would uh, rig, rig for, for holiday, you know, for holidays. He had, you know, we had the uh, 200th anniversary of the, of the Republic, right? And, uh, and he, uh, he had all these special, you know, little flags and you'd run them up, six halyards, you know, and, That's awesome. and uh, all kinds of things. He'd so, he march you out for a formation, a reveille every morning before school? And well, he didn't march me out for formation, but, you know, if I wasn't wrestling in a wrestling tournament or, or playing a baseball game on a Saturday morning, you know, the door would pop open and, and he'd come in and say, reveille, reveille, all hands heave out and trice up. You know, I knew what that meant, you know, um, as a, as a <laughs> kid. A, wow. Get your feet off the deck. We got, we got things to do. Let's go. Oh, and, man. Uh, imagine doing that and, my kids these days and so <laughs> right you know so uh the, and, and and i you know the the amazing thing about it is i i don't know none of us n- none of us saw that as a bad thing yeah it just was yeah you know and and uh and it's what we did well and probably at least i can remember that type of mindset from my father it was something that was instilled oh, in them of that generation who went through, you know, the military at that time. Well, also the depression. Right. My parents are children of the depression. Yeah, mine as well. Yeah. Yeah. And so, I mean, you know, if you grew up and like I, I did as well in a military community, it wasn't like you'd go to school and tell your friends, oh man, you know, my dad, you know, kicked me out of the bed at 530 in the morning because we all went through <laughs> yeah, that, yeah, you know, yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. So yeah. it wasn't like it was uh, something you were an anomaly. Yeah, no, not at all. But, you yeah. know, it, it, it may not be exactly the same these days. And, and, and I will tell you, our society has become, you know, soft yeah. in general. Yeah. But when you see, you know, uh, a picture, there's that picture that's gone around social media of all the kids on a playground at a, at, at a military, on a military base. And... And they all are standing on the playground with their hands over their heart. And you can see the sun setting and it's colors. Mm-hmm. Because whenever you heard. Oh, everybody stopped. Whenever you heard, everything stopped. Yeah. Including the kids. They learned to do it. They knew what it was about. Yeah. You know? And. Uh, do you still see that going on? Yeah. I was getting her to say that. Yeah. It's the same thing. As long as you're not on the main road. Yeah. Like you'll, you have to yeah. pull over. The cannon goes off. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, I used to remember even in my time of service, though, mm-hmm. that there would be people would be like, all right, dude, get out of the car. Stop your car. You know, that kind of thing. And so I just was curious if. They will stop and get out, but not so much as the like, hey, get out of your car type thing anymore. Mm. Um, it all depends on what first arm start majors close to you. Not exactly. Your car. Yeah, who's looking? <laughs> but but what you're talking about, Tom, is a generation that understood that from a very young age because it was embedded in you. Well, yeah, you know, you know? I'm, when I was a kid, I remember in the fourth grade learning the Americans' Creed. You know. Okay, that was, and it, we said the, That's yeah, solid. we said, it wasn't, it was a public school in San yeah. Diego, you know, but after we did the Pledge of Allegiance, we mm-hmm. said the Americans Creed, and I included it in my book, it's in, it's in the appendix, uh, appendix of my book, um, and, uh, 
it, it, it was, you, you were, you know, my, I, I, I talk about this in my, in my book. I say, you got to know what you believe. And I told my kids from a young age, you know, what do we believe? As Christians, what do we believe? You know, well, we're Orthodox Christians. We believe in the, in the creed. If you read the creed, it says, I believe. We laid it out, you know, the, the early church laid out. This is what we believe, um, statement of faith. And, uh, you know, what do you believe about, you know, being an American? What do you believe about your country? Um, and then, mm. you know, and then, you, and then the hard part, is, of course, is living those values. And, uh, and, and we were raised to live those values, you know? So how, 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 why did I go to the Naval Academy? Well, I had two brothers that went to the Naval Academy. I thought that that was the best way for me to become a Marine officer. The one thing my dad did say, he says, you should be an officer. Be an officer. If you're going to yeah, go in the yeah, military, I be an that officer. Up. So why, do, why would he say that? My dad had great respect for officers. Um, he was offered the opportunity to become a, a, a warrant officer, and he turned it down. And, uh, and that's, that's a, long, a, a long story. But he had, he had some, uh, the man I'm named after was a, was a uh, Mustang uh, supply, uh, um, medical service corps officer and uh, had been a, a corpsman on Guadalcanal. And, uh, and he, uh, he was, uh, yeah, John Maurice Thompson, fantastic man, uh, amazing man. And uh, he, uh, he and my dad were best friends. He introduced my mom and dad to each other. They both worked for him at one time <laughs> in, uh, at the same time. And that's how they, that's how they met. They were both working at, uh, at Naval Hospital Portsmouth in, uh, in Norfolk or Portsmouth, Virginia. But, uh, but anyway, so, so my dad had great respect. And in, in fact, you know, several of his former commanders, uh, et cetera, uh, he was good friends with. And, uh, you know, we, we went and visited them on, you know, and, and, and met them. And Mr. Thompson uh, told my dad, said, you know, your, your uh, oldest son becomes a naval officer. I, I'm, I'm going to give him his sword. And, uh, and he did, but it was a Marine sword. So, um, but yeah. You know, my, my dad thought, uh, you know, being a naval officer was pretty special stuff. Mm. And, uh, but he, he didn't see himself uh, in that role. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, he, he did a lot of things as a, as a sailor. You know, he was a leading bosun's mate on a, on a minesweeper during the, uh, during the Korean War and uh, as a hospital corpsman. And uh, he was... Mm. Uh, so he was responsible for all the rigging of all the all, all the sweep gear, and all that was manually done in those days. Yeah. Um, and uh, so you know, we knew he he knew his stuff. He was going to be a great sailor, regardless of what his uh, specialty was. And uh, and that's that's what we learned. You know, I mean, uh, great. You know, the whatever you were going to do, do it one hundred and ten percent. That was the, you know, that was the rule. That's what I told my son. I wanted my son to be a, to be an officer, you know, because he's in 175 uh, Ranger Battalion, First Ranger Battalion, and I was like, you know, there's this path you should, you know, you saw Dad going through this, you know, private life, if you will, and just, just the hard row as an NCO all the way through. But <clears throat> once you get, you know, different levels as an officer, like the things kind of, you you become more than in charge, you know, and less. Um, and more appreciated and respected, and you earn that, you know, rightfully. But he was like, Mm-mm, "I'm just gonna be a grunt and send it." So, 
But I, he was, I was like, as long as you give 110% or whatever you want to do, son, like, do that. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Do that. Um, you know, my, uh, my kids both surprised me when they were in the 10th grade and told me that, you know, that they wanted to, you know, they wanted to be Marine officers. My, my daughter was like, you know, Dad, I think I want to, uh, we, were, we were painting the kitchen. And, and, I, and I looked at her and I said, okay, this is your 24-hour watch with me painting the kitchen. Or this is your 12 hours, you know, um, so we probably ought to talk while we're doing this. What do you think you want to do with your life? She looked at me and said, I think I want to go to the Naval Academy and be a Marine officer. And then when I get out, I'll use my language skills. She's a fluent Japanese speaker. Um, wow. <laughs> she learned, in, she learned it when we were in Okinawa. And uh, she, uh, I said, you sure you want to do that? I said, you really, you, you know, I mean, having seen combat a couple of times, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's not all, you know, it's, it's not all dress blues and sunshine. And uh, she said, well, Dad, I've been watching you for 16 years, and, and I've got some friends who are in Afghanistan and Iraq, I, and I think I know what I'm getting into. I said, well, I'm not sure you know what you're getting into, but l let's get past the Naval Academy thing first. Let's get you there, and we'll figure it out. And I said, you know, you want to be, you know, you could go to the Air Force Academy. You could be in the Air Force. You know, they got a gymnastics team at, at Air Force. She ended up starting the gymnastics team back up at Navy. Um, and uh, she said, no, I, I can only be a Marine. And she didn't waver from that, you know. And then uh, my son, who's six years younger than her, you know, it was Memorial Day weekend um, at the end of his 10th grade year. And he's like, I think I want to go to the Naval Academy and be a Marine officer. Like, okay, why? And we, and we had the conversation. And uh, I said, why do you want to go to the Naval Academy? He was like, well, you know, I, I, I want to be a Marine officer. I said, well, you don't have to go to the Naval Academy to be a Marine officer. He just kind of thought you had to because you had a bunch Everybody of people else. that went to the <laughs> Naval Academy, right? You know, uncles and et cetera. And, and uh, I said, you don't have to go to the Naval he, Really? I said, yeah. So he says, okay. So let me think about that. And he got his first choice, and he chose Texas A&M, and he went to Texas A&M, and he's finishing his, in the second semester of his junior year now, and he's going to go to OCS this summer, uh, Marine OCS this summer as part of the platoon leaders class. So, hmm. um, It's awesome. Yeah. yeah. So when you, when you got out of the academy, what was it that you didn't decide, uh, what branch did you end up going into? Uh, artillery. I became an artilleryman, but, you know, my two oldest brothers were artillerymen, uh, and I, when I was a... So it was a choice that you, or... Well, you know, you get, you get to make a choice, right, right? Right, That doesn't mean you get what you make the choice, right? right. Um, so was it your number one, It though? was my number one. Okay. I, I got my first choice. I had gotten to go to work with my brothers when they were at Camp Pendleton, and we were living in San Diego. My dad would send my sister up there, uh, me and my sister and I up there, to stay with them during the summer uh, mm. for weeks at a time. And, uh, and so I would, my brothers would bring me to work with them. And I'd go PT with their Marines and, you know, follow them around and see what they did. I uh, didn't get to go to the field with them, but I got to, uh, got to see what they did in Garrison. And I uh, thought, you know, I'm pretty dang sure this is, this is what I want to do. I like this. And then I got to see some more over the course of my time at the Naval Academy. And uh, I like the idea, you know, I, I, when I talk to young officers, uh, I used to, uh, for a couple of years, I, I was uh, going 
going over to the, the basic school. I lived eight miles from the basic school. Every Marine officer goes through six months at TBS, at the basic school, before you get your MOS or go anywhere. So you learn the basics of being a platoon commander, the fundamentals of, of uh, pl platoon company level uh, tactics, et cetera. And I'd go over there, they'd invite me over there, I'd get, I'd get to talk with these youngsters, and, I, and they were getting ready to, you know, the whole thing at TBS is, you know, what's your MOS going to be when you, you know, when you get done, and how do you get it, you know? And I said, well, quit, quit worrying about that too much. First off, Marine Corps is going to tell you what you're going to do. It, it, they're going to tell you. You're leaving here it, with a job. Yeah, you're a Marine. <laughs> you, 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 you won the lotto. You're a Marine, okay? So be a Marine. No matter what you do, you're going to lead Marines. Be thankful for that and do it well. But as far as choosing your MOSs, you, you, know, you should put some thought into whether you are an indoor or an outdoor Marine. Mm. And they go, well, how do I know that? Well, you know, when you're humping down the trail and you get 65 pounds on your back and, you know, it's raining and it's muddy and it's slippery, do you go, I just want to be back in my rack with my whoopee, or do you say, this ain't so bad, I can kind of dig this, then you may be an outdoor marine. If not, then you're probably an indoor marine. And then you should think about whether or not you're a heavy junk guy or a not heavy junk guy. Because, you know, you can be an infantryman, they don't have as much junk as an artilleryman or a logistician or uh, an engineer. So, because those guys got to think about all of that equipment and making sure all of that functions as well as leading their Marines and being tactically competent in the things that they do. I really liked that challenge, that, that idea of having guns and trucks and things and, and, and fighting, and also fighting, I think, as a lieutenant of... Uh, in the artillery, you, you have to understand tactics at a higher level um, in order to be able to support a scheme of maneuver for a battalion, a regiment, and a division. We almost start out at the organizational leadership part because you have to understand the entire mission in yeah. the end state so yeah. you can you know, front-line trace of everybody so you don't hurt anybody hurt. Absolutely. And how to create gaps, support gaps, you know, and allow for deconflictions. You know, absolutely, all of those things. Yeah, I and and I loved all that. That was that was true art to me. Um, what you could do on the battlefield with fires. So, where where did you end up getting assigned first? Then, I went to Camp Lejeune. Okay, I went to Camp Lejeune for three years. Was was in, was with uh, November Battery Five Ten for all three of those years, which was unusual. Um, for a lieutenant to stay in a battery for the whole time, I went from being a, uh, and, and now what was even more unique in, in today's, uh, today's world was we had self-propelled howitzers. And 510 had three eight-inch batteries and three 155 M109 alpha, alpha somethings. The Marine Corps never bought all the full mods, so we had some alpha one and a halfs and some alpha twos and <clears> some <throat> alpha threes. and. But, but they were all, they all looked like, and, uh, and pretty much, is, and, and all the same capabilities. Um, so I was in a, a November battery, it was an M109-Alpha-3 battery, and uh, we had 100 Marines, and uh, when I got there, we had 55. We had 55 Marines and, and five officers. 
And uh, the difference in, a, in those days, those were considered general support batteries. Uh, so you were always in a reinforcing role to, uh, to one of the DS battalions. And so, um, so we, didn't have, uh, we didn't have forward observers. We had one FO. Um, and, uh, and that FO was uh, assigned to the liaison section. Uh, and your liaison was always liaison with a, uh, with a direct support battalion because you were providing reinforcing fires. That was the concept. It was a very brigade support uh, structure. And in those days, we were just starting MPF, the Maritime Preposition Force, and that's spent a lot of time working that, working that uh, drill, uh, trying to put things on ships and, and figure out what needed to go there, et cetera. But, uh, but those, uh, that br very brigade-like structure, you had an MPF that was oriented in different places, and you had flyaway brigades. Um, and we were, we were part of that for 18 months, uh, 18 months on air alert. You know, you had, you had to be within 12 hours of uh, oh, uh, uh, of station all the time. Oh, I know. We did op alert where yep. I, oh, I work. And, and everybody's got to know where you're at all <laughs> yeah. the time. And, uh, but, but we did those things. So it was a tremendous, and it was a fantastic battery. Um, and uh, that's because we had a fantastic commander, a guy named John R. Buchanan, Big Rod Buchanan, and uh, God love him. Uh, uh, one of the greatest leaders that I ever met, and I was very fortunate. And, and I, I would hope that every lieutenant would, would get that kind of leader to start with. I spent my whole career trying to be as good as J.R. Buchanan and my older brother, Pat. That, that, that was, th those guys set the bar, um, put, the, put the demands on us, taught us, um, worked us hard, treated us like their sons, you know, and expected us to do the same for our people. Mm. And... Uh, and so it, it was a it was a tremendous experience. Three years, uh, three years there, and uh, and uh, Lieutenant Colonel Buchanan got promoted to major and went up and became the three. And we got a new battery commander, a great guy, and uh, and I became the XO. I'd been the fire direction officer for eighteen months. So I have a real love for gunnery and and uh, what you know, what you can do fires wise. Uh, but John Buchanan, Rod Buchanan had taught us, uh, you know, what it was to, to be the full, the full up round. You had to defend yourself. You had to be, uh, you had to know how to, how to, uh, he was a, a Vietnam vet. He was, had been a mortarman in, Viet, in Vietnam, a sergeant, sergeant in Vietnam, got out, went to college, came back in the Marine Corps. And he and my brother had served together at Camp Pendleton. But, uh, but yeah, so Rod Buchanan uh, taught us everything it was to be able to move and shoot and communicate and all the things that you had to do to make that happen. And he made us very, very tactically competent officers. And uh, so, so the, uh, it, it, when I became the XO, it was, it was, this is fantastic. This is the best thing going. And you're the XO of a firing battery. No better position for a lieutenant of artillery than to be the XO of a firing battery, at least in those days. Um, and uh, after about eight months of that, you know, I, I went on leave. I came back, and my, 
the new battery commander looked at me and he said, hey, XO, what do you think about recruiting duty? And I said, I try not to. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, what do you think about Iowa? And I said, the battleship. Ooh. I said, the battleship, because that's where I wanted to go. I wanted to go be uh, a, a detachment XO or guard officer on a battleship. We still had those in those days. That's how old I am, Jace. Um, and, uh, and he said, and I said, the battleship. And he said, no, the state. And I went, uh, what are you talking about? And uh, well, he didn't say Fort Polk, so that's a good. Thing. Yeah, well, you know, <laughs> Robin, I, I know about that. I don't think I don't yeah. I don't think I'd ever been to <laughs> Iowa at that point in time. But uh, I had one month to get out of town, you know. So, I, but I was I was very upset, and I I went and chewed out the battalion XO, who, was, by the grace of God, was a, a man who was very. calming um great great uh, a great guy and uh he said sit down let me tell you how it works <laughs> so you done you done running your mouth i said yes sir he said sit down let me tell you how it works. He, i mean for the things i said he probably should have put me in shackles you know um but uh and so i had a month to get out of town but that spot right there that like right up front like you had those transgressions you go up to your big xo and you just giving him the business, and then like the, the 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 way that he has like that kind of patient mentor to let you vent though. How, how did that develop you though? Like what did that? How much did that mean to you? Like going forward and like understanding like you're you know going to have to be that someday. Yeah. Um, well, other than the the fact that it probably went on hiatus for three years while I was on recruiting yeah. duty. Um, it's always way later when yeah, you realize it's really well. We, you know, actually. when I came back as a battery commander. Um, that was, um, that's when uh, all the lights went on for me. And I talk about it in my book. Um, talk about, you know, there was a movie going on at that time. Uh, it was called City Slickers. If you've never seen City, you've seen oh, yeah. City Slickers? Okay, so, and uh, Billy Crystal, you know, is talking to, uh, to Curly, right? The old gnarled cowboy about, you know, what's important in life. And Curly says, it's the one thing he says you have to figure it out what it is for you and I said no for a leader your one thing is your people it's your people that's your one thing and I realized you know I'd been through Desert Storm at that point um, after recruiting duty I joined the regiment in, in the desert and, and I became the regimental fire direction officer which was uh, a very rewarding challenge and, uh, but I, uh, I thought to myself, you know, that's, that's the key. That's the point. The point is you don't, you don't know who the hero's going to be. You know, you don't know who that, who that guy or gal is going to be. Who's the one that's going to, yeah. that's, that's going to jump on the grenade, but even more so who's the one that's the, the, the driver that's going to raise his hand and say, sir, you shouldn't drive that truck. Don't put a howitzer on that truck. The brakes aren't doing, aren't, aren't right. How come nobody else has told me this? Mm -hmm. I, I don't know, sir, but okay. You just probably saved a gun crew and a gun, you know, from a rollover. Well, that uh, shows your approachability as a leader, too, because, you know, that young, if that young Marine, has, you know, feels trusted that you're willing to listen to what he has to say because you are that approachable leader, like that, that, that says, you know, lights about you, you know? Well, that, 
I'd like to believe that that's true, and, and hopefully it got, became more true as, as I got older. But, uh, but absolutely, I think it was when I became a battery commander, and I had to, and I had, you know, seven lieutenants, and uh, and 150 marine, 140 marines, you know, um, that that that's that's really when I, I said I began to really put it all together and go, you know what, it there, this is this is not as simple as it looks. But it's very simple. It's called common sense, and it's called believing, you know, in the value of your people. I call it the prime imperative. You got to believe that all your people have value. Hmm. Yeah, I'm writing that one down. <laughs> <laughs> so you went on recruiting duty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was how it. was it? Well, what? Well, wait, what year was this? Oh, you know, so this is eighty-seven to ninety. Okay, uh, I was out on recruiting duty as well in Houston, Texas at that time frame. Well, I'd have loved to have been in Houston, Texas. Yeah, I, I, Iowa. So you, I mean, you're like a fish out of water. Oh, San yeah. Diego, North Carolina, now Iowa. Yeah, Iowa, Iowa, and uh, and I didn't go to college. Remember, I went to a trade school, right? Mm. So um, the uh, so I'd never lived the college life, etc. But. Um, so I got out there and I spent 18 months as the OPSO, so the recruiting manager. And uh, where and in Iowa were you? Well, the or does it matter? Yeah, well, <laughs> it doesn't. It doesn't. I yeah. mean, Des Moines was where our our, our headquarters was, and we uh, and in Des Moines uh, was where the recruiting station proper was in yeah. the federal building there, and then the uh, officer selection office was there too, and that's important in a second, but. Um, but we were responsible for all of Iowa, part of Illinois and Wisconsin. Okay. Okay. Um, and we, the the western, uh, a western part, so we didn't have, uh, so we didn't have uh, Sioux City and and uh, some of that that belonged to to Omaha. But anyway, so um, I got to two two things set the set the tone for Iowa. Um, I had one month to get out of town, so I, I got there. It was March. I think it was March the 7th I got there, and I got an apartment, and I bought some furniture because I had no furniture. Um, and I bought a bed and, you know, and a stereo because all well, lieutenants need a stereo. Right. right, yeah, all lieutenants need a stereo. Right? And a done, bed, you know, stereo, yeah, done. And I, and I needed a table, so I bought a... And a refrigerator to yeah, hold the beer. I right. bought a dinette set. Well, yeah, well, that came, yeah, that came. But, uh, but anyway, so I, I, I bought a recliner, and, and I sat down in that recliner, and I, and I fell asleep. And I woke up, and, uh, and I looked out the sliding glass door and there's three feet of snow on the ground i'm like how long have i been asleep <laughs> and uh because i thought it was like six o'clock the next morning because the clock said six o'clock and i went and so i'm running around turning on the news doing whatever i can do to to, to figure out what time is it really because I, i'm either like late for work or uh you know, or, or something else is going on. That's that hard nap that you go into and you wake up and you're like, <laughs> yeah, well, it, it, I'd been asleep for about three hours and we had like three foot of snow. So that, and that was March. Um, and then, you know, another experience that gives you a, a clue is I, I was out at a function uh, in, in my dress blues and I, I was going, uh, I had to stop and buy some, some, uh, some bread, some, some milk, and I uh, went in the grocery store, and I'm going through the checkout line, and 
this gal is at the checkout line. She says, she says so, so you're in the National Guard? I'm thinking, dress blues, white hat, <laughs> nothing more distinctive. And I'm in the National that's, Guard. That's like a slap in the face. I, yeah, that's yeah. so that's I, the best uniform still. So, <laughs> exactly. so I, I looked at him and went, I looked at her and said, no. New York Fire Department, big white hat. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, That's quick thinking. And, uh, but that was, but, but Iowa's the only state in the union that doesn't have a major military facility on it. Yeah, that's true. And, and a lot of the kids will go into the National Guard. And uh, in fact, tons of them go into the National Guard, but they, there is no major military facility, so... And there's no water for Marines and Navies. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good point you well, made, yeah. So, yeah. So I spent... So, Ocean? Yes. What? So I spent 18 months uh, as an opso, and, uh, and the station was very, very successful. Um, the, the, had a great CO there for my first three months. It was the end of his tour, but we had, and he had set uh, a lot of great things in place. Uh, great sergeant major and uh, PJ Seagriff, and, uh, and we did, uh, we, we did a, a fantastic job there. They, the, Mar the Marines did a fantastic job there. I learned a lot of things. Um, I, I'll get, and I, I'll get to that. So after 18 months, um, new CO, et cetera, I got told you're gonna go be the junior officer, selection officer. It was like, what? Yeah. And it, I mean, this changing from enlisted to officer is, uh, recruiting is different. And there's different requirements. And uh, so I, I served three bags full. I went and became the, the, the junior OSO, and I was getting, and, and the senior OSO had split the state in half, and it gave me half the state. I had one pooley, I had one, no, two. I had one at Iowa State and one at the University of Northern Iowa. And, uh, and we, uh, we had not made mission in seven years. Really? Yeah. It was a very different time for well, officer recruiting. Yeah. And, and it was very collegial, and, and, uh, and, they, and everybody put packages down, and they took the guys that were good. And, and on top of that, that they, it was the summertime, and they had uh, a 75% attrition rate at OCS. So the guys they were putting into OCS weren't making it through. Mm. So you had guys coming back to college, with nothing but bad things to say. Hmm. And uh, what, what, what was the reason why they weren't making it through? Um, was it just academic or, academic or physical or, or uh, combination? Physical. 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 It, oh. Yeah, it, it was physical. Okay. I mean, but it was mental. They weren't there to be Marines. Mm. They were there for a summer job. They, were there, they weren't committed to being Marines. You go to OCS, you get like going to boot camp, you get 10 weeks to, to show that you have the will and the ability. Mm -hmm. That's what OCS is about. Yeah. It's not going to make you a great Marine. It, it's to find out whether you're good enough. Um, the standards are very high at Marine OCS, and they were, they were very high then, and they had some interesting policies. I mean, if you sprained your ankle before the final PFT, you went home. You didn't, you, you didn't graduate. We don't do that anymore. Yeah, I'm about to go be the uh, Bravo Company OCS first sergeant after uh, leave regiment before I retire. So, uh, I'm I'm soaking all this up. <laughs> <laughs> so um, the Marine Corps has gotten smarter, and of course, 
now the commandant has a, a whole new talent management plan, and I think there's a, there's a lot of good things to go with that. Um, but you're going to be a Marine, so be a Marine. Um, but anyway, so I, uh, so, uh, I, I knew uh, I had learned the heck out of what systematic recruiting was, and systematic recruiting exists um, as a methodology in the Marine Corps since about 80, 79 or 80, um, a methodology where if you have the basic capabilities of intellect and, and you can speak and you don't look like you've been hit by a bus, um, you, uh, you can succeed on recruiting duty if you're disciplined, if you do what, what is there. So I, I started doing those things um, at, at the cyclic rate, you know, as fast as I could. Um, rinse, repeat, right? Study, action, reflection, refinement. That's the process of any Marine, of, of any leader. Study, action, reflection, refinement. If you do it fast enough, you're considered successful. Um, so the, uh, so I started, and in six months, I had zero contracts at six months. So I was getting a phone call on a regular basis saying, you know, you're you're gonna, not going to leave here without double signing, you know, without an adverse fitness report, and da 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 da. Finally, I got mad at one of the, at the assistant for officer procurement, and I said, "Get in your airplane, major," because they had the, they were all pilots, and they had these little airplanes they flew around for the, for the district. So get in your airplane, fly up here, and see what I'm doing, because the senior also was not, was not my friend. He wasn't trying to help me. Um, he was in, he was competing with me and, and spoiling things that I didn't know about until later. Um, so the major flew up to his credit. He went on campus with me for, uh, for two days and he said, man, you're doing everything right. I said, yes, I am. I appreciate that. And, and we're going to keep doing it and something's going to change. We enforce the standard until it is the standard. Then you don't have to re keep reinforcing because yep. it just... It keeps feeding itself. Yeah, yeah. Well, we had to change some things, man. You know, my first, I had a gunny who worked with me, a, a great guy, and uh, but he brought me an applicant early on, and uh, I would go run the PFT with all these guys, just the initial PFT, and uh, I I ran all the PFTs with him, but I ran the initial PFT with this guy, and and he, he and then we're running, and he stops and starts walking. I'm like, what the heck are you doing? He's like, uh, I just thought I'd rest for a second, and then I'd start. I said, yeah, okay. So we finished running it. I said, okay, thanks. We'll, we'll, we'll be in touch. I got in the car and I looked at the gunny. I said, don't ever do that again. Never again. He's like, I'm like, bring me lions, not lambs. We are not about lambs. We are about lions. Find me lions. We're creating a lion club. This is what we're doing. You know? The, I love it. And, uh, and so uh, they put that on my plaque when I left. Lions, not lambs. Um, <laughs> the, uh, and uh, <clears throat> so from January till May, uh, we, uh, we found 17 guys. We found 17 guys. Maybe it was 18. We found 18 guys. Yeah. And, we, and those 18 guys went to, went to uh, OCS. 18 guys graduated. Or 17 guys graduated. One guy... Got, got to OCS, and they do a, a medical screening on him when they get there. And he's, he called me up from, from Quantico. Sir, I'm sorry. I, you know, I, I forgot to tell you about my ankle. I, I sprained my ankle. I, I thought it was just a sprain. They tell me I got to go home and get da 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 documents before I can come back. I'm like, it's all right, buddy. 
It's all right. You know, we'll, we'll be okay. And uh, I don't know if he actually ever went back, but, uh, but 17, 17 guys. So then I had 17 guys, most of them from Iowa State, second largest institution in the state. Uh, University of Iowa had 45,000. Iowa State had 25,000, something like that. But uh, it, spend your time at the big schools. Learn to do things smart. And so, but I still get my butt kicked. And that summer, that next summer, the senior also got relieved. And uh, they left me in place. I guess they figured I was worth, worth saving. And, uh, and I knew that I had to do something, get smarter. And, uh, and I had bought a, I'd bought a day timer. I'd still carry a day timer. I'd bought a day timer, and in the back of it was a, was a uh, time management uh, tape program. Cassette tapes. That's how old I am. <laughs> and, uh, and, and there was... Uh, there was eight hours of cassette tapes. And uh, I said, well, can't hurt me. I've got a Saturday off. And I sat down on, the, uh, on my uh, living room floor and listened to eight hours of these tapes. And I said, holy crap. I got to do this again. So on Sunday, I listened to them again with a stack of notebook paper and started writing copious notes about what was being talked about. And I realized that mm. it, time management is not about time management. It's about values. It's about what's important. It's about bringing your performance in line with what you believe, with your values. Aha. So I started, I started writing things down. I said, you know, I think I'm a, a Christian, but I wasn't going to church, I wasn't reading the Bible, and I wasn't praying. You know, how Christian am I? Um, I said, okay, so what can I do to fix that? Well, there's one thing I can do right now. I can pray. So we'll start doing that. And, and I, don't, I don't think I've missed a day um, since 1988. Um, and, uh, and then I, you know, I said, well, what are the things that I want to, who am I? Who am I? What do, what do I believe what, why do I do what I do? Why do I want to do this? Um, and and uh, so I, I went through that whole process for myself. And then I, then I looked at my office and said, how do I do this in my recruiting office? And we're going to have some unifying principles for this, what we believe, how we're going to do it, who we're going to be, what we're going to do. You know, values, vision, mission, purpose, right? daily tasks, or tasks, uh, activities, and habits. And, and that's what I do now. And I started doing that then. And I said, you know, I'm going to do this in every organization that I'm in. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to teach this to people wherever I go um, because it, they're going to have to understand a certain amount of this. Do what's important, right? Do the important things. And I, you know, I read a book recently um, Brian Tracy, if you've never read his book, Focal Point, but it's very, very good. It's as close as to my, it, it aligns very well with what, what I've learned. And, uh, but uh, he, he talks in there uh, about, uh, about personal strategic planning, which is what that is. That's personal strategic planning. Yeah. Well, how, um, how old are you at this time? Like what rank are you whenever you, you come to this? 
I was a captain with about one year in grade, so I was about six years of service. So, I mean, the who you are, like, decision is, is that's not an easy question to answer, you know, to, and to put it. The, yeah, what's your purpose, who you right. are, what are your values? People don't dig that deep that young. <laughs> no, and, I, and I, it, it, that just strikes me because, I, I, you know, we talked about this, Rob, in my mind is I, I had a buddy that kind of put me in that check, you know, and I had to have that conversation with myself. And that's the hardest question I had to answer and where I wanted to set my values. And the fact that you figured that out as a six years in the Army, it took me 15 well, those cassettes, those cassette tapes, it's funny that you mentioned that because nowadays that's really the podcasting. Yeah. You know, I mean, you listen to um, some kind of media that allowed yeah. you to get that. And, but um, what made you get those cassette tapes up? What made you, that's the thing. So that was like the catalyst. You Sure, you listened to them and everything, but something made you get them. But was yeah. it a friend or was it just you? To, yes. Yes and yes. Okay. Um, so when I bought the, the so I had a, uh, a friend of mine. I had started investing uh, when I was a second lieutenant in the only place you could invest in those days uh, as a second lieutenant. I was in, you know, I, I was putting $50, $50 a month uh, in, into investment. And, uh, and most people wouldn't allow you to do that in those days. So only people that dealt with military and they would only do this for, for that organization. So, um, so my representative was a guy named Hank Austin. And Hank was a retired lieutenant colonel and he lived in Omaha. And Hank would drive over to see me uh, in Des Moines um, just to see me. No, but we wouldn't talk about investing or anything. He'd just come over and see me and we'd, we'd talk about how things were going and what was going mm. on and all that. And, uh, and so he was a mentor Yeah. and, and Hank pulled out his, pulled out of his breast pocket, a day timer. And I guess I, you know, I, I don't, I don't feel bad about, you know, about saying, about saying the product name because it, it, it has been yeah. my go-to for, <laughs> you know, for this many years and, uh, pulled out a day timer and, uh, he said, I said, I need one of those. I need something because the recruiters had this very complex, what they call schedule and results sheet, which was they put everything on and how they were, what they were supposed to do, their productivity, the, all their appointments. But it was not like something you could put in your coat pocket or carry in your, in your wallet. I think that like whenever you, you know, your, your dad started this like foundation for you, right? Like, oh, yeah. get, you know, you go back to like when you talked about in the morning time and you're getting up and you're doing these things, <clears throat> you, uh, it, from listening to you, you know, when you got in this position, you, you didn't schedule creates accountability, right? And you didn't have that, you know, but to see that a little bit, that foundation was laid for you as, as a kid. Oh, yeah. And then, you, you know, you kind of get away from it because you get the military life going on and you're like, you, you feel like you're just kind of a wobbly wheel. And then, you know, your butt, you see that buddy sparks you and you're like, man, now I know how to get my life back on, which is, which is super Super awesome for you to be yep. able to notice that so young. Yep. And in the back of that daytimer was uh, an advertisement and an order form for those tapes. Oh. Uh, and I was getting my butt kicked, and I knew that I had to get smarter because I couldn't work any harder. And so it was more of a focus on time management. That, well, but that, it, that's, that's, what, that's, that's what its kind of premise was. Yes. 
But through that, you you got so much more out of it. Well, the the whole program is more about the principles, okay, than it is the techniques. Yeah. Okay. And there was a there is a part of of that program that is about the techniques of how you use a day timer. Da 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 da. Sure. But that was actually not the major focus. The major focus is what are your values? What are your goals? How do you write them? How do you put them? And then how do you make them come to fruition? And, uh, and so, and, you know, the guy who, who put that program together is a guy named Dr. Charles Hobbs. And, and, and Hobbs uh, had, was, had done the research. He had, you know, he had a, done a PhD on, on this stuff. Um, and uh, and Hobbs, uh, Hobbs did a very, a, a very good job of, uh, you know, of talking to things that we hear all the time now. If you read Tracy's, I read, I, I listened to Tracy's book on, uh, uh, on Audible, and I said, I got to buy it. And I bought a copy for my kids and, and said, listen, you, you have to read this. It's, the, the chapters are short, but you have to read it because it, it, it Which talks book are we talking through. about? His book is called uh, Focal Point. Oh, okay. Focal Point. But, but, uh, but at any rate, the, uh, but it comes down to, you know, focusing on, you know, certain things, a concentration of power. You know, how do you bring your attention? How do you, how do you put your time uh, on the most important things? Mm-hmm. You know, it, it gains you a concentration of power, the ability to focus on something. When do you get good work done? Close the doors, get rid of the interruptions, and you get the work done. Well, guess what? You'll get a lot more done and a lot faster if you do that. You know, pe- people gone down this road of, you know, multitasking, and multitasking doesn't exist. It, it's, it's, a, it's a myth. And uh, they've proven that in ver- various, you know, scientific studies that all you're really doing is shifting your focus back and forth. And if you're doing anything that requires thought, you can't do that. It takes you like 20 minutes to warm up, to warm your brain up and get it focused on what you're doing. Yeah, when you get older, it takes a little bit longer. Than that. <laughs> <laughs> I know. And depending upon how much alcohol is involved, yeah. it probably takes a little bit longer than I that. Know. It's a slow I, know, I know, brother. I know. I know. Yeah. When I went to the, uh, the SPAR program out there, you know, they talk about exactly what you're talking about, about how, you know, multitasking is, you know, you can say you're multitasking, but you can really only focus on one thing at a time. Well, you know, you can read a book while you're doing the laundry. Yeah, okay, you got go. that. That's but right. you can't read a book while you're folding the laundry. Right. You can listen to a book while you're folding the laundry. But even then, you're not getting, you're not getting optimal absorption or uh, no. optimal retention of those things when you're doing it, you know? No, I've, uh, I've found that same thing. Like if I'm, you know, even doing something like trying to multitask and edit a podcast as an example while doing some other type of work, I'm at times I'm not listening, you know, or if I'm listening to a podcast and I'm thinking, Oh, I'll just kind of listen to it while I'm working. Um, and then I realize that I've missed, it's sort of like driving. Have you ever had those moments where you're driving and you realize, Oh my God, I've just traveled about 15 miles and I don't remember driving the 15 miles. It's the same thing in terms of, yeah, you really only can focus on one thing. Yeah. 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 Retention, at least, as far as that. Yeah. Well, when you came to this realization, I want to go back to that, um, and and you learned all of this, people are going to be listening to it, and they're going to go, okay, well, what is it that you learned, Tom, that actually um, you mentioned some of it about, like, 
you know, finding really what your values are. What does that really mean? I mean, to people. Yeah. yeah. Well, because you know, where do we get our values? Yeah. How do they, how do they come into play? Well, you know, Jason hit the nail on the head, right? I mean, it started at home for me. I mean, we all went to church every Sunday. Um, you know, I was an altar boy. My brothers were altar boys. Um, you know, we knew that, um, you know, the flag went up every day. We knew what patriotism was. We, we understood those things. Mom and dad talked about those things, you know, what's important. Um, you know, in our house, we had values that were laid out for us, you know, um, uh, church, school, sports, uh, and scouts, right? Those were, those were the four priorities, Right. And, and, but when you're a kid, your parents decide, you know, when there are conflicts, which mm. one you're going to do. Right. So that was what I was going to ask you too, because a lot of times our parents put values on us, but what is it that we still have the will or the desire or the ability to change and create our own values? Yeah. 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 Well, when you live them, mm. when you live them, okay, you can talk a good game, but it's always about what you do. Right. Do you walk the talk? Right. Mm. And my, my parents walked the talk and uh, in everything, you know, I mean, you know, my dad was, you know, my dad was there. My mom was there with this, with the scouts, you know, my, my dad was this scout master more times than he wanted to be because he needed to be. I tell my guys when I give them my senior NCOs when I counsel them, I'm like, if, if your values, uh, if you don't, if you wouldn't give your life for your values, then it's a feeling in a situation. But if you give your life for your values and you would dedicate your time and effort to it, then that's probably one of your values. And it's kind of like a, you know, like for me, it's been, because I didn't hmm. necessarily have like the, the, the road like you, you had. And, and during my time, like thinking about those things, that, that's kind of what I, I came up with to like kind of build that little well, foundation for myself. So, Absolutely. What would you die for? Would, would you die for your country? Would you die for your family? Would you die for your faith? Okay. Would you die for those things? Um, now, mine have gone, and I've massaged them. It's not a, it doesn't, you don't get there in a day. Yeah. It's a revolving you know? wheel, too, because well, the older you get, different things, like your values are going to change in different ways. Well, well, your they, core values are always going to stay the same. I'd say they, three they, core values are going to stay the same. God, family, country, boom, there you go. And then, you know, other things, and you get older, you know, you're going to take precedence over the different things. I don't disagree with you at all. Um, the one thing I would say is is that they will they will be refined over time, right? That study, action, reflection, refinement thing. That's right. that, that, yeah. You know, over time, as I got older, as I experienced more things, okay. At one point, my I, I wrote down all my values were the were the Boy Scout law, right? Trustworthy, loyal, helpful, friendly, courteous, kind, obedient, cheerful, thrifty, brave, clean, and reverent, okay? That just happened. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, <laughs> yeah, so I told you. Um, so those, that, and then, and then I looked at it and I said, you know, some of these fit together. And, and, yeah. and, and, and you know, Stephen Covey does a pretty good job of this in, in Seven Habits when yeah. he talks about what are your roles, right? Because your roles have something to do with this. I tell everybody, you know, I didn't really understand leadership. You know, I've done all this and all these things, but my daughter was born. I was, uh, I was getting promoted to major. When she was born, I went, wow, this is, this is what unconditional love is. Mm, amen. This is what love is. Holy cow. You know, and I remember, 
then when I was getting promoted, the day I was getting promoted, it was headquarters Marine Corps, there was a brigadier general in there who had been my regimental commander, and a whole bunch of people waiting for me. My, my wife shows up, and my daughter's got a poopy diaper. She's six weeks old. My daughter, my wife doesn't know anything. And the Navy Annex, which no longer exists, but old headquarters Marine Corps. Um, I'm, I'm running around head, uh, headquarters Marine Corps with, with my six-week-old daughter trying to find a place where I can change her diaper, right? I end up in the men's room. There's no place. I I'm, lay out the towel on the floor because, and I'm kneeling down there in my, you know, in my service, service dress, right, changing her diaper, and I'm thinking to myself, I'm going to get promoted here in 15 minutes, and everybody's waiting on me, and I'm in here with, you know, poopy diaper. Guess what? It's not about you, idiot. Yeah, that's right. It's not about you. It's like, holy cow. They, you know, God gives us those insights at, 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 at different <clears throat> times in our lives. I went, okay, I get it. I think I, I get that. So, you know, get it cleaned up, go get promoted, and recognize that it's, and that was, a, and that was an interesting tour of duty that, that caused me to, to, to gain a much better understanding of things uh, that hopefully I was able to, to then use to help my Marines in the future. Yeah, I, I go back to, real quick, to, you said um, God gives you those perspectives, right, at right. the right time. Um, I was dealing with, quite a bit of stuff the last few weeks or whatever. Mm -hmm. and I, I was like, you know, this is the worst thing ever. You know, you know, life's going to shit and we'll have to figure it out, you know, whatever. Uh, and then I, one of, one of uh, my family, old family members um, had a five month old that, that passed away. Oh man. And when you put things into perspective, right? Like that, how selfish do you feel about how feeling sorry for yourself at that moment, whenever that's in reality, what, that's what pain and you know suffering is yeah, yeah. And, and to be able like you said I, it was just funny that you said that and i just had kind of that revelation you know yeah. myself driving yeah. driving home from work and i'm like everything's going to hell but uh and then i read that you know and hear it and, and i and i text my uh ex-brother-in-law and i'm like hey man like and i i instantly feel bad that i was feeling feeling sorry for my damn self you know in that situation so yeah, yeah. there's a saint in the orthodox <clears throat> church who uh who said uh don't ever judge what another person is going through or don't ever judge another person because you don't know what battles they're fighting I've, I've seen that same type of text all over the place in social media and every time i read it or reflect on it it's so true because sometimes especially in today's society where we feel like everybody needs to put themselves out there, you know, whether it's Instagram, Facebook, whatever your social media, social media thrill is. Um, people look at that and they think that's the reality, uh, but you don't know. And, and you don't know what's really going on behind the scenes. Oh, yeah. They're only sharing what they want to portray. And um, social media is a great way to hide that because they can put something really nice out there, but then you don't see the demons that are going on when after the photo is taken. Well, and... and, and it, it, you, you're you're right on the money, and as a leader, as a leader, you have to be willing to engage with people at, at their level, and you have to be willing to listen and and hear and empathize. You know, are your priority. It, yeah, I, I had a conversation with a a friend of mine the other day, a, another uh, retired marine and a coach, 
and we were talking about empathy. And it's it, nowhere do you find it in leadership traits. Um, hmm, you know, true. But, but empathy, yeah. you know, is, is, a, is a critical critical issue as a leader in any organization. And, you know, social media and, and uh, working from home and doing things by Zoom calls and all that stuff, um, you know, one of the things that, that uh, is a challenge, I, I think, these days is people understanding what empathy is and being empathetic with people. And that doesn't mean that you, you know, everybody gets a, everybody gets a pass you know, but understanding uh, where somebody's coming from. You know, when I was a lieutenant, I had a, a Lance Corporal who, uh, who was 19 and he was married and they had a kid and one on the way. And, uh, and he and his wife were, uh, they were fighting and they were fighting about money and, uh, and about lifestyle. And uh, pretty, pretty typical yeah. when they are fighting. That's yeah. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, they and she would not talk to the chaplain and so i i got them to come in and i sat down with them and we went through the whole drill and i spent a day just helping them figure out what their budget was and what they needed to do yeah i didn't do that because i was being empathetic or i had even thought about that i just knew that was a problem that needed to be solved and the only way that it was going to be solved was if somebody sat down with them and and i was the guy yeah so from that point on she would only talk to me and i became the chaplain Mm -hmm. for any of their marital woes um and hopefully they stayed together forever i don't know but but what it did was it sent a signal to all the other Marines in the unit that I was willing to listen. Mm-hmm. And they would bring me things that they wouldn't, they wouldn't bring to anybody else. That's, that's leadership. That's, yeah, I was going to say, that is the true open door policy. <laughs> yeah, well, you know? uh, but you do what you have to do. And some days, that's what your day is. And, yeah. it, and when you're a leader, you get messy. You've got to be willing to get messy. People are messy. We're yeah. all messy. We have all kinds of messy stuff. We all have yep. past, okay? Between the time my mom died and the time I left, le- left to go to the Naval Academy was not what I would call the best period of my life, okay? I used to say, like... For a variety okay. of reasons, you know? I, I was going to... I didn't want to get too far past what I was... The, the caveat on... You know, I used to... About the open door thing and, you know, busyness. And but we do get busy at work, especially at the senior leader, le- leader level. And uh, obviously, I have an open door policy. But some days, I, I'll turn around and be like, I didn't, I didn't get anything done today i used to say i used to say that i used to when you know, one of my first years of first and i'd be like i didn't get a damn thing done today but i talked to a hundred different you know all my people and i you know help them solve problems and stuff but as i grew you know in that leader position had that self-reflection that we talked about um then the last 18 months when i would have those days where i didn't necessarily knock out all said tasks or whatever and I would have an all day of where people are coming in and out of the office and I'm talking, you know, hour conversations, hey, person, I got this problem. Right. That became one of the most accomplished days I would have in the week, you know, spending that, like putting the people first and, and making them the priority. And by doing that, I noticed, you know, you almost, you don't notice till you're about to leave out, but I noticed that 
the things that I was needing to do to ask for things were already, already getting, getting done. done. And I, I, I talk about this as, uh, you know, as a leader, you saw if you solve the small problems, the big problems never happen. And you only solve the small problems if you're forward with your people where they're at seeing what's going on. And that's harder and harder to do as you get more and more senior. And, you know, as a colonel, you're not, you, you can't be in the trenches every day. But you can go see your staff. You can go see your commanders. You can go see the people who are closer to the line. And you have to learn to lead your leaders. Um, so all of the things that you learn about leadership as, you know, as a youngster, as a young officer, or as a, a, a young NCO, right, you continue to apply. Your values don't change, but how you apply them, the methodology, the, the techniques have to grow with what you're doing, you know. Um, I was having this conversation, you know, being a, being a leadership coach, you know, when, uh, when a company grows, right? It, 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 the culture is going to change. Mm -hmm. it, it, it's not going to, you want to keep it the same, but it's different leading a platoon than it is leading a regiment. Well, it, then sometimes the, the culture changes and the right, the wrong people go out and the right people come in. Well, right. and that's the great challenge to a leader. Do you have the right people in the right spots? Like yeah. the, right? The, good well, the company moved forward, but the people remained or their capabilities were only are we're limited to what size you were previously. Yeah. So, you know, you, unfortunately the business has passed them by. That's right. Yeah. And you still got to get the right people on the bus. Mm -hmm. Yeah. This, this is a big challenge in, in all business, but it also can be the same thing in terms of, you know, the beautiful thing about like Rangers and all that, you know, programs where you have selection is you get to select the right people. You get the right people on the bus. In typical business, especially in the private sector, you might get 30 minutes an hour on the phone or in a Zoom call or face-to-face -face where you've got to try to select based on their resume and what your impression of that individual is and the feedback that you get from everybody else that participated to determine if they're the right people to put on the bus. Now, I won't throw this guy under the bus, but a very, very famous author and an advisor to CEOs made the statement the other day that the only way that you can shape your culture is by hiring the right people. And, and the challenge to that is just what you just said. And the fact is that you shape your culture every day as a leader. And no matter who you hire, you still have to build your culture every day. The challenge that you have in, in the military is your culture is constantly changing because your people are constantly changing. Mm -hmm. You know, you go on deployment, you come back, you lose a third of them or a half of them, and, and now you've got to start over, so to speak, um, and continue to reinforce, you know, I, I, how many times, you know, as a battalion commander or as a, a you know, a, a senior, senior officer, you say, how many times have I said this? Well, yeah, and you need to keep saying it because, right, you need to keep living it because your people have changed because you need to continue to work with the new ones and create that culture. You're, you know, um, when I was leaving Jido, my, uh, my deputy, I was the chief of staff at the joint IED defeat organization and, uh, one of my last tours and he, and he was, he, he wrote my award and I, and he said, 
sorry, I was writing your award. I said, I don't want to know about it. Um, he said, and I recognize that the whole time you've been here has been change, mm. characterized by change. I said, yeah, that's what leaders do. Mm -hmm. that's, that's what we do effectively is we lead, we, we are change agents, we're change managers, we're change leaders. That's what we do. In, in the military, you're constantly in a state of change. There's a new mission, there's new people, there's new challenges, there's whatever, it's, con it's constant. And you, and you take it for granted, mm -hmm. right? You take it for granted that, uh, that that's just what you do. But the, everybody in the, in, in the private sector doesn't do that every day. They, they don't, they have steady, they have a certain amount of steady state. And, but, and then when they're faced with a big challenge, that their their experience isn't well. Here's what I do because that's what I do, you know. Well, here here's what you here's what you need to think about, you know. You're you're going to grow your people. You're going to create more leaders. How are you going to bring them on board? How are you going to make them understand? They don't have an acculturation process that's ten weeks long, that proves to them that this person is capable and willing. They have half an hour. They have a, a week of. Here's how you fill out your healthcare forms. Um, you know, do they really have an enculturation process? Mm -hmm. um, and that's where coaches come in. That's where leadership development comes from. But all of that is worth nothing if it's if there's not a sustainment cycle on the end of it. It's kind of like a, leaving a legacy, if you will. But you know, like uh, I heard a um, speech yesterday uh, at Ranger School graduation, and uh, a huge mentor of mine, great, great man, great ranger, um, Sergeant Major Johnson, about to be the next RSM, and he, uh, he gave the, you know, definition of legacy and read it verbatim, and um, he's like, you know, you leave your legacy every day wherever you go, and you do that by when you leave and the change that you had when you, you know, where you got, you know, every, we always want to make it better. When you leave, people remember the changes and they build off of your legacy. Mm -hmm. and that's what being a true leader is, is, is leaving a little piece, changing something or somebody's life every day. One person a day is a hundred yeah. lives changed. So that legacy building off of that to continue to grow and make the organization better. Well, that's the reason that I chose to, chose to do what I did um, in 2018. You know, I called my boss and said, uh, I, I was writing the book. And uh, my daughter was telling me to hurry up and finish it. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, we, I want to. I want to get to that too. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and I was writing the book, and I said, you know, this is what I want to do every day. Yeah. I want to talk to people because it seemed like everywhere I was going, I was always in a room talking about leadership strategy and organizational dynamics. Okay, um, and so uh, I said, you know, I, I this is what I need to do. And and somebody said, well, you know, you could be a public speaker you could talk to lots of people and he said you know you, you don't make change talking to large crowds you make change one person at a time that's right one at a time right yeah. and uh and so so i said hell that's what i'm gonna do and i called my boss and said hey this is what i want to do and he said well you better get started on that i said yeah that's why i'm quitting yeah. she's like oh you can just stay for a no I'm, this is why i'm quitting he says okay all right what can i do to help a good man, he's a submarine captain. 
Well, we, good, man. I want to go back um, just a little bit because then I want to transition over to the reason why you wrote your book and everything um, where people can pick it up and, you know, um, get a lot more of the insights that you're describing. But, you know, when you were saying what you were talking about, a constant changing culture and um, the role that the leader plays, I, I got to thinking as well about the dynamics of individual change um, and that the leader has to be the nucleus and at least the, the as everything is revolving around, they have to be the steady state. They have to be the one that continues um, changing and evolving, I guess, in, in a way along with some of the culture. But as these new people are coming in, team building is so important. It's about establishing you lose three people, you gain, you know, three people or two people or whatever, and those group dynamics start uh, changing. You know, team building is almost a lost art, I think, in some cases, especially out in the private sector. We call it team building in the military because, oh, I'm the leader and you're on my team and now you're going to. But really being that team leader, really being that individual that understands the strengths and weaknesses of one individual over another. And can I find ways to fill the gaps and open and build the overlap and understand that each person is dependent upon the other and why we're all here and how that ties to the strategy. And, you know, to me, I think that's something that's not necessarily taught. We, um, we we build that through shared hardship, right? Like, I, I wouldn't disagree. But remember, leadership is an apprenticed vocation. Okay, I'm going to trademark that because that's mine. Um, well, now it's on the podcast. Yeah, working on it. It's okay. <laughs> it's okay. It, it, it's in the book. Um, it's in the book. And, and and I actually I actually as I was writing the book, I I, I came to that realization. Leadership yeah. is an apprenticed vocation. You, you learn it uh, by doing, right? And you have to be continually apprentice and, you know, master and apprentice, right? Learning while teaching, right? And, and, um, and subordinating yourself to the experts in the areas that you're not mm-hmm. so that then you Which can... Which requires humility. Absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. Humility is... You know, somebody asked me what the most important leadership trait was, and I said, it's humility. you got to be able to look at yourself every day and said, did I do what I was supposed to do yesterday? Did I accomplish what I needed to accomplish? What do I need to go back and do? And sometimes you got to stand in front of your people and say, you know, we were going to the right, but I was wrong, and we need to go to the left. And here's the reasons why I think we should go there. You got it there. What right, do you right guys there, think? Though. You nailed it, in my opinion, with the why. The why matters as oh, a yeah, leader. Absolutely. And if you leave the why out, everybody just kind of guessing, you know. It, but when you give the why, it gives purpose. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I used to tell the lieutenants when I went over and talked to them, practice talking to your people in five-paragraph order, right? Situation, mission, execution, uh, admin, logistics, command, and signal. Because in that mission statement, forced situation, here's what we face, here's the mission, you know, and it's the f- it's the it's the five W's, the who, what, when, where, why, and how, mm-hmm. right? We, we roll mission and purpose together in a military order, mm-hmm. right? In the, in the civilian world, we tend not to. We leave the, too many times we leave the purpose off. We talk about what our mission is. Our mission is to, you know, make the greatest widgets or whatever. Mine is to, you know, help leaders and organizations improve their performance and success personally, professionally, spiritually, and physically. 
because it, I think you got to have all four of those pillars. Um, but the purpose, what's your purpose? You know, my purpose is to build leaders of consequence for our nations, churches, families, businesses, and communities. You've got to have a purpose, and that, that purpose has to be in there. Your purpose is your why of your mission statement, right? And, uh, you know, you've got to know where you're going. That's your vision, right? You've got to know what you believe in because that, that's the underpinning of all of it and your culture, right? The values feed your culture organizationally. Right. Surround right? yourself with people that make you better every day and that you can learn from or... If you have that choice, but remember, we don't choose. We, who we don't. We, we a lot of, in the military. We yeah, don't choose, yeah. right? Now, I it's I will tell you. You talk do. about having the right people. You know, um, I'm going to mention her name. Uh, you know, there's a there's a young lady out there, a fantastic officer that worked for me in Okinawa. Her her name is uh, Marina Foster, and uh, she's a Colonel Select right now, and I'm very proud of her. Congratulations. She man. she served as a company, as, as my headquarters company commander, as my three and as my four at different times because she was capable of doing that and those were places that I needed her and she rose to each of those occasions and did them superbly. And, uh, and I know she loved being a company commander. She didn't particularly love being the three or the four, I don't think. But, but, but it's just, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm hard enough to work for. But um, she, uh, but she was, uh, she did a fantastic job. But knowing who you need, I, I only had so many options, mm -hmm. and who I needed, where was her? Mm -hmm. and, and and you know, she took the ball and she ran with it, you know, and made great things happen. And, uh, and she continues to do so today. And uh, so I'm, I'm very proud of her. But that's one of those examples of sometimes you have to take someone out of the place they fit the best and put them where the organization needs them the most. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and that's, a hard, that's a hard call. And, uh, and I don't know that, that in, the, in the private sector we think too much of that because there's so much specialization that goes on with so many things. But being a leader means being humble enough to go, I'm not smart enough for this job yet, but I will be. Mm. I had a staff sergeant that worked for me. I remember uh, Staff Sergeant Neil D. Nome. He's out there somewhere. Um, gr great man. Became, be, uh, became a major in the Marine Corps. Um, he was my commo and uh, my comm chief in November Battery 510. He came to me and he said, sir, I, I haven't been in comm in six years. I've been on, on uh, Marine Security Guard duty. And uh, he says, but if you give me six months, I'll be the best comm chief in the, in the regiment. And he was. In six months, he was the best comm chief in the regiment. Absolutely. But he looked at me and said, that's what, you know, I will do that. Um, he's humble enough to know where he was and, and uh, driven and, and smart enough to become who he needed to be. And that's what leaders have to do. We don't get to choose what kind of leader we are. We can choose who we are. We're positive, we're forward-looking, you know, and, and hopefully we have those, those four key qualities that, that uh, many studies have shown, you know, we, in, in honesty and integrity, uh, vision, um, competence, and uh, I'm trying to remember the fourth one. At any rate, 
Oh, it always gets me. Um, <laughs> but there's, there's more. As, as many other things that you've no, remembered, no, no, no. like names no. from, I, I can't remember well, half that stuff. I can't remember I, names of somebody I met probably three but, days ago. But but, but we, we don't get to choose the, the leader that, that we need to be because that's who the organization needs. Sometimes you have to be more hands-on and more directive. And sometimes you need to be more... Um, you know, more delegating and, and, uh, and more, you know, laid back because you've got all the great people to do the things that they need to do. Um, we don't get to choose that we, that challenge that's presented to us. Right. And that's where that whole apprenticeship issue comes from. Mm. Right. Because you have to humble yourself to the experts and say, teach me, teach me about that. You want to make a Lance Corporal happy, go crawl under a truck with him and let him tell you everything he knows about that truck. Absolutely. Right. And, and then you know something, too, right? Well, you're being a present leader, and you're showing your dudes, like, I'll get out here and do it with you. And that, makes, that matters more to the dudes than you being like, hey, man, you did a good job. Here's a coin. But you're learning something every day, and you're teaching something every day. You bring that back and say, you know what I learned today? You look at your people and say, you know what I learned today? I learned this. Maybe they all know that. You know, you know, you know what you just made me think of though is like, if you watch a um, an actor, let's say in movies or television or whatever, and they seem to be no matter what show, whatever movie you see, they're the same person every time, mm-hmm. right? Versus what you just described is how I see it as you have those actors that they just seem to adapt to every situation and you're blown away every time you see them on the screen because they dive into that character. I read that as a, being a lead, leader that is not so rigid. You can hold your values and, and you can hold on to yourself and everything else, but you also need to be an adaptive leader to the situation, to what's occurring, be present in the moment, you know, all of those types of things, which I think sometimes people struggle with personally. I mean, I've watched leaders that, that do struggle because the situation, they want to guide the situation back to their comfort zone. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, comfort zones, comfort zones are not comfort zones. Um, they, they will only provide you comfort for a little bit of time until it all comes crashing down in your head. Um, because the, uh, the only way we grow is to get outside of our comfort zone. The only way we get better is to stretch beyond our comfort zone. If you become 1% better every day, you're over a thousand percent better by the end of the year because it's a compounding you know, equation, just like money, right? It's compounded every day. I tell my guys, day. you take uh, uh, the 1%. I tell my guys, I say, take whatever you want to be better at and you spend 100 days in making that 1% better every day on that one topic, you're 100% better. And then you pick your next topic thing that you want to fix, work on, try to make better, and you do the same thing over. But you're, they're actually more than 100% better. Because it compounds daily. Uh, yeah. Every time you learn yeah. something, you grow. It's not. It's not a straight line. Yeah. You know, it's an exponential. Uh, it's an exponential relationship. Um, so you know, you get better in one area of your life. All areas of your life will get better. But wisdom comes from making mistakes too. So oh yeah, you're you're also saying it's okay if you go out there and you know, you try to be the best leader. You're doing everything right, but then you stumble across. You know, and it, that's okay. It, if your people see you make yes. those mistakes, yes, that's okay. As long yes. as you own them, you as, have lo- there as long go. as you own them, you as long as them. you're as long as you're accountable for what you do, 
right? You're responsible for your actions. You're accountable. Saying I'm right? sorry and to, you know, a group of 30 dudes that you, you know, did, you know, you're like, damn, we messed that up. That was definitely on me is, is you know, shows those guys like, well, he is human or, you know, that's a good. Well, especially if you can tell them the why. why that's right. Right? The why. Why, you know, here's, here, here's what I screwed up. I know better now. Mm-hmm. You know? I, and, I mean. And then you give that back to them with, you know, I should have done better bottom-up refinement to figure out why or how before we even got to this point. If I would have listened to you guys through this, these process and steps, this wouldn't, I wouldn't have even got us to this point. So. Yeah, yeah. Well, that gets harder as you get more senior because okay. as you get more senior, you can see what is going to happen if you let it go that way. Well, your problems. Mm. You know? Your problems. Leading <laughs> indicators. Yeah. yeah. You know, you, you go... I, I, that was a real realization for me, you know, in, in uh, combat operations in Iraq was, you know, I was a, uh, I had 20 years of service as a battalion commander and my, you know, my XO had 16 and then my battery commanders were all at less than 10. There was a 10 year gap between me and my battery commanders and, and that, and that wasn't just a 10 year gap in experience. That was a 10 year, a 10 year gap in, in socialization and in culture and everything else. So you, you Things that you say are not necessarily received the way that you said them, no matter how clear you thought you were. But you also got to know when you're the big dog, and when you're the big dog, you know you got you need to play the cards the big only the only the old guy knows, right? You got to you you got to play them if if that's what needs to happen. There's a time for people to grow and make mistakes, and there's a time for you to go, whoa, don't do that. Can what I like to do this. You know, when you say that, I, what I like to do is, um, I learned this from a good mentor of mine, but you know, you, you said, uh, two, two ears, one mouth, right? So I, uh, I'll sit in my meetings or I'll go, go to my, you know, my shops or, you know, out on the range or whatever. And I, and I watch, you know, and then I like to, then I'll be like, okay, here you go. Like, this is what I see. Instead of like just going out and inserting yourself into the problem, you got problem uh, creators, problem solvers, and problem preventers, right? So when I, I allow those guys and show them, like, hey, this is how I observe that to create that from saw that was going to happen. And if you could step back from being upfront in there with the guys and lead them, you know, with guidance and direction from right here. And they get out of their way. Then you can get out of their yeah, way absolutely. and let them lead. Absolutely. So what? Excellent point. So why did you write the book? <laughs> well, you know, my dad wrote two books. He wrote, he wrote one about, uh, about his uh, time in the minesweeper fleet, and he wrote one about his first four years in the, uh, in the Navy, and, uh, including Peleliu and, uh, and World War II. Um, when I was getting ready to go to Desert Storm, uh, I, I had some, some time off, and I jumped in. I was, I was going to drive up to Monterey and see my sister and my brother-in-law. He was at the postgraduate school. I said, Dad, you want to come along? He said, sure. So he jumped in the car, and we, we, we drove up there. And I, I asked him, I said, how come you never talk about World War II? <clears throat> and he said, uh, I don't know. And then he started talking, and eight hours later, he stopped. And uh, Man, I bet and, you were just a sponge. Oh, yeah, yeah. And then, <sighs> and then when, I came back, he'd, when I came back from Desert Storm, he'd written it and, and written it. He wrote it longhand. He wrote everything longhand. And he used to write us essays, epic essays and stuff. And uh, <clears throat> so, and then, 
and I still got to get those things published. <laughs> um, the, but anyway, um, <clears throat> he didn't he didn't want them published while he was alive. But uh, uh, so anyway, when my daughter was getting ready to graduate from the Naval Academy, I uh, I thought I'd write her an epic essay. You know, you're going to be a lieutenant. You know, here's some things to think about. I started writing, and it started getting longer and longer, and, and then I said, this is not going to be an essay, <clears throat> and, uh, but I don't want it to be uh, a tome. I don't want it to be something that sits on something, and what can I say that's new about leadership? And that's probably the hardest thing. You know, if you really want to know something, write a book. You'll figure out what you, what you know and what you don't, right? And, and you learn some things while you're doing it. And uh, I said, I just wanted her to, you know, to, to understand what she needed to do as a lieutenant. So I said, okay, well, and then I need to keep this short. I need to keep it something that she'll read. And, and it can't be all-inclusive, but, you know, it really doesn't matter um, if it uh, is an academic work of art. It needs to be um, useful, and it needs to be a roadmap. Applicable. Yeah, something that she can, you know, that she could use. So, so I said, all right. So I wrote the whole book, and then I let a friend of mine who'd never been in the military read it, and, uh, and he said, you know, it's really good. He said, but you, like the last section is your whole book. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, that last section you should just put up front. And I said, and so I had to reorganize everything that I'd written because he was right. And that's how I ended up with, with, uh, with, because I kind of wrote it like a novel, like it came to a con conclusion, in which was, you know, all the meat was at the end, mm -hmm. and the fact was and that it was spread out through it, the whole thing. He was thinking bottom line up front. No, the old yeah. military. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, kind of. Um, but anyway, so, so I reorganized it, and that's yeah. how I ended up with the sections that I have, and there's, you know, the chapters that I have, and I have no section that's longer than three pages, and so... You know, I love uh, the whole concept because, you know, what you wanted to do is, is try to figure out a way that you can leave your knowledge, you know, with others and specifically with your daughter um, so that she can be the most effective leader. And, and here, here's, here's what I learned through all of my years of service and all of my mistakes and, you know, all of those things. And I'm going to put it into words so that maybe you can cut to the chase. And sometimes you go... If I went back 20, 30 years and could tell myself, would I make the same choices and be where I'm at? And I, I feel like sometimes those books are helpful, like what you're describing and giving your daughter. But yet we also have to still, and I think that's what you're still trying to share with her, is you still got to live your own journey. Yeah. It's, it's not like you can read all of this and you're not still going to make the, the same mistakes. Yeah. You're still going to make the, some of the same mistakes, but at least now you're probably going to recognize that, oh, damn, that's what he was talking about, no. you know? Yeah. Oh, well, I, you know, and I think she has, and I think she does. Um, she's very much her own person. Um, there, are, there are many days where I go, God, she's me, just prettier. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, but... Uh, but she's yeah she's she I'm very proud of her she's done she's, she's still an active things. duty marine yes and uh, yes. yeah yeah and she's got orders to go to the naval academy and be I on saw the staff that. there and uh, so unbelievable I'm very, very excited about that yeah she didn't even put in for it uh, no 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 she I, she asked to go there yeah, oh okay she, I she thought she asked to go there and uh, she uh, that that's that's been her 
that's been one of her goals yeah. is to go back to the Naval Academy. And, and uh, so, uh, you know, she, she'd be very, very happy if they let her become a company officer. And she had, uh, you know, she had a hundred, hundred and something midshipmen to, uh, to guide and direct and uh, help grow. Um, so yeah. what is the name of the book in case somebody oh, yeah, else yeah. wants to pick it up? Yeah, it's called uh, Becoming a Leader, A Roadmap for My Daughter and the Aspiring Leader. They can find it on Amazon. Um, Tom Connolly. Tom Connolly, right. I think it says Colonel Tom Connolly on it. I'm not sure. Yeah, um, two N's, two L's. Yeah, C-O-N-N-A-L-L-Y. Yeah, yeah, if anybody's ever trying to get a hold of me, if they spell <laughs> it wrong, they won't find me. Um, after years in the, in the gal um, you know, people going, why can't I find you? Uh, how'd you spell it? Um, <laughs> that's the Southern Protestant spelling of Connolly. So, um, and that's another story. Yeah, so another <laughs> that's another story. But, uh, but yeah, so the, you know, wrote the book uh, <clears throat> and uh, in the, you know, in the process of doing so, it was not intended to be like the centerpiece of my business, but it effectively has become the centerpiece of my business. Um, you know, I spend a lot of time, whoever I'm working with, talking about the first part of that book, which is values. I mean, there's five pieces to the book, right? You know, the prime imperative, um, which we talked about earlier. Um, you know, be competent, which is all about what you believe in and, and uh, how, how you become competent as a leader own the mission, whatever you do, you're responsible for, right? And give it 110%. Go the extra mile for your people. Um, and, uh, and then there's two that underpin all of that, and that is learn something every day and teach something every day. Right. Do that, and then you're never standing still. Um, you're always do you have a forward. website that people can also go to? Oh, yeah, they can go to ConnollyConsulting.com. Okay. And, uh, and, and uh, find, find me there. Uh, they can find me on LinkedIn, uh, Tom Connolly. Um, they can find me on Instagram, Connolly underscore consulting. And uh, on Facebook, I've got a Connolly consulting page and I've got uh, Thomas Connolly page. Um, and uh, so I'm, uh, I'm actively uh, on all those pages. Um, some more than others. I think more, more, I see, I probably do more on LinkedIn than anywhere else. I was going to say you're on LinkedIn and yeah. people can certainly follow you there, um, either connect or follow either right. one and, right. you know, you drop good nuggets. So, um, Tom, I appreciate you coming in and coming all this way for, this is round two. And, yeah. um, I think, you know, honestly, I like this show probably better than what we taped in round <laughs> one, just the flow of it. because. It. <clears throat> Yeah, it's probably because of Jason, Jason. Yeah. Um, <laughs> instead of Paul. It's making uh, us look Paul, Paul, if you're listening. So, <laughs> you know, the uh, the show, I think, turned out so much better because we didn't t follow the typical pattern. We just really got into picking your brain apart about the leadership part of this whole thing. And and like we talked about, this is a this is a challenging topic for a lot of people, especially at a young age, when they're looking at maybe even transitioning out of the military and somebody asks them, what's your purpose, what's your why, what's, you know... And you, you nailed all of that, and then you gave them additional guidance here throughout the podcast as to now what do you do with that? How do you go about um, sharing that with other people and guiding and leading and mentoring others? And um, I, I just really appreciate you coming on and sharing that. Thank you. Well, I, you know, I'm honored. Um, and uh, it's, it's, I really am. I'm humbled that, that you have me. Um, I'm just another guy, you know, who... Uh, 
you know, I... I, I wouldn't say that. Yeah. <laughs> I did, uh, you know, I, I, I had a, a lot of good a lot of good mentorship and a lot of good leadership uh, in in my time in the Marines and and even before, um, you know I have I've had uh, great experiences. Um, I've learned my lessons sometimes the hard way, um, and uh, you know my my wife said, "How long are you going to do this?" I said, "For the rest of my life." She said, "You sure?" I said, "It's not about the business. It's bigger than the business. About the people." It's, Prime imperative, right? But it's uh, but it's it's about giving it's about giving back. It's about trying to yeah. trying to do something worthwhile for the rest of your life. Yeah, you know. I was listening to this a song, a country western song on the on the way here. I think it's called "Buy Dirt," mm-hmm. and uh, it says, you know, you know, you can't you can't buy happiness. You can't buy the, but you can buy dirt. You know, and then talks about all the things you know that you should do in your life. And uh, one of the things he says is, you know, choose something that you like and then make it your work. And I would say, choose something that you value and then make it your passion. Mm-hmm. 